Good morning, good morning. All right, excuse me if I slay some of these names, but Luke chapter 3. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip tetrarch of the region of Ituria, uh, Trachonitis, and Licinia tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priest of Anas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and high and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowd that came out to, the bat to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, What then shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. Whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or false accusations, and be content with your wages. As the people were in expectation, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing, his winnowing fork is in his hand to clear, to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into, the, into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with, with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But heard the tetrarch, who, who had been reproved by him, for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to, uh, to them, and that he locked John in prison. Can you hear me? I want to preach to you this morning on the topic, Meet Jesus. Meet Jesus. When I order 
a Coca-Cola, which isn't often. I don't drink Coke often, but when I do, I order it with no ice. You know, if you get ice in your Coke, it dilutes it. And when I drink Coca-Cola, I want to be able to taste the Coca-Cola. Now, some of y'all put so much ice in your Coke. You're drinking some sort of nasty, watered-down... It's not even water. It's just like, it's not watered down, because you can't call water watered down. You're drinking Coke-flavored water. Some of you like your Coke <laughs> diluted. And some of you like your Jesus diluted. Listen, an unfiltered Jesus, a full-strength Jesus, is a Jesus that some of you have never known. For you, Jesus is a, a, a homeboy. He's a friend. He's, he's like a cousin. For others, Jesus is a mystical figure, like Santa Claus or the Buddha. For others, Jesus is a legend, like Peter Pan. For others, Jesus is a, is a great teacher. He's a, he's a good man and a good teacher, filled with maybe the best teacher. But the Jesus that we know here at the Garden Church is a Jesus who is so powerful if he were to walk in this room right now, we would all fall on our knees. He is to be feared. He has the power to destroy the largest and strongest empire and dictator the world has ever known. And he is the judge. John the Baptist has a sense. He hasn't even met him yet. But John the Baptist has a sense of this undiluted Jesus. And that's the Jesus I want to meet this morning. That's the Jesus I want to take you to this morning. On Time Magazine, there's a, uh, a question, who is Jesus? And you see this picture of Jesus. I, we might, do we have a picture of that, Kwame? There he is. Or she. Looks like a woman with a beard. This is, uh, that's not really Jesus. That's, uh, that's, that's a, a white girl with a beard. <laughs> um, but it's not the picture that, I'm, I'm interested in, it's this question, who do you say I am? Who do you say he is? Who is Jesus? The answer to that question is the most important answer any of us can figure out in our lifespan. Who is Jesus? 
As we look at the text here in John or Luke chapter 3, we see first that Jesus comes in history at the right time. In verses 1 and 2, we see these names, Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate, Herod, Philip, Licinius. This is saying Jesus came at a certain time in human history. He was not a legend. He was not a mysterious and mystical figure. He's a man of history, and we can pinpoint his dates. We see this man, John. This is a cousin of Jesus, John the Baptist, the first character who's going to introduce us to this man. In verse, uh, ver- ver- verse three, John, or verse two, John is in the wilderness. You see it there. And a word of God comes to him in the wilderness. And in verse three, it says that John goes and he's proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, John the Baptist's ministry is a unique kind of ministry. He is preparing the way for the Messiah. He's preaching in such a way to prepare the hearts of the people so that when Jesus comes, a splash would be made. So that when the Messiah comes, the people would know who Jesus is. So that they would recognize Him. So that they would say, ah, here is the one that we have been looking for. The identity of Jesus Christ is the most important thing that you and I can discover. Because we don't understand his identity, we make too much of our own identity. We live for our identity. We live for our name. We live for our successes. We live for our abilities. We live for the things that we can do in this world. We live for our dreams and our passions. And we get upset when somebody hurts our identity. Listen, as you are living for yourself, you're not living for too much. You're living for too little. Your sights are not set too high. Your sights are set way too low. Oh, this is the problem with the prosperity gospel, by the way. They want to make you think that your success is the highest sights you can see. No, it's just too low. We want something more than the prosperity gospel. We want Jesus Christ. The identity of Jesus Christ is what we're after. And as we find our identity in His identity, we are changed. That's essentially my sermon. So let's come to him. Before we see Jesus, we have to first see ourselves. And that's what John does in his ministry. First, he takes us and he points our eyes at ourselves and he says, look at you first. So in this text, we see first ourselves. What do we see about ourselves? Well, we see that we are sinful. As the crowds come to him in verse 7, what does he call them? He says, you brood of vipers. Now in Matthew, he says this directly to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Here in Luke, what Luke shows us is that he actually said that to to everybody as well. The whole people of Israel. Everybody 
that, were, that was coming, including people just like you and I. He looks at them and he says, you brood of vipers. Oh, I thought preachers were supposed to be nice. I thought preachers were supposed to come with a smile and talk about how to have a nice day. I just love you so much. You brood of vipers. Listen, you don't want a nice preacher. You want a preacher that will tell you the truth. And so I get to stand in front of you right now and tell you that you all are, all are a brood of vipers. Well, we are sinners. This is the doctrine of total depravity. Now listen, the doctrine of total depravity doesn't mean that we are as depraved as we possibly could be. God's common grace keeps us from being as depraved as we possibly could be. You know, the most wicked person out there can understand love, can give and receive love, can contribute something good to the world, can appreciate beauty. Well, this doesn't make much of the person. This makes much of God's common grace, that he allows even sinners to, to experience some of his goodness in the world. There it goes. We also are not as bad as we could be in that we have what's called God's restraining grace. This is the kind of grace that keeps us from doing as much as we could do. Uh, the kind of grace that restrains our wicked passions and our wicked desires. Uh, meaning, if we didn't have restraining grace in the world, you've seen the movie Purge? Good example. It would just be, it would be crazy. But total depravity, and what John is getting at, is not God's common grace or God's restraining grace, but what he's, what he's saying is that, is that in our most important consciousness, we are uh, depraved, we are dead. At, at our, the most fundamental level, uh, the most important piece of us, uh, which is our spiritual uh, ability to know and to love and to respond to God. In that sense, we are completely depraved, which means we are God-haters. We are poisonous. We are venomous. We are sneaky. We hide. We are deceivers. We are lovers of the flesh, of sin. Of, are, are, we are driven by our father, the devil. This is what he means by the fact that you are a viper coming to him. And so therefore, in verse 8, we see the second thing, and that is that we need to change. He says to the people who come, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Meaning, coming to Christ is not some kind of easy believism. We don't just simply believe three or four doctrines about Jesus and about who God is and assume that we are okay on our way to heaven. You can go to hell believing a couple things about God that are true and right. If you are living a life of ongoing, unrepentant sin, and you think that you have assurance of your salvation. Somebody taught you wrong. He says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Don't get me wrong. We, we, we don't bear fruit in order to be saved. 
But fruit is a sign that we are saved. Are you tracking with me? Meaning works are not part of our salvation. That is repentance. At our salvation, we repent, which means we change our mind about the direction we're going in and we decide to go a different direction. How do you know that you repented? Fruit. Uh, you got all these people who are coming and they're saying they're repentant, but they're not bearing fruit of repentance. And John is saying, show, show your salvation by your works. Show your repentance by fruit. Bear fruit. He goes on. He's, John is in some ways a pastor. In verses 10 through 14, he goes on and he counsels them and he shows them what fruit looks like. If you have two coats, share. Like some of y'all took way too long trying to figure out how many layers you're going to put on this morning. All the while, there's somebody out on the street who doesn't even have a coat. Like if you've got more than three or four gray outfits, give some of them away. We just don't need that many clothes. That's essentially what he's saying. Now we can apply this to our bank accounts. Like some of us... Uh, uh, I shouldn't say us, some of you are going to get wealthy. All right? It's just probably going to happen. Some of you will, at some point, make some money. What if you say, I'm going to cap my lifestyle right here? I'm making 40, 50, 60. I'm going to cap my lifestyle here. And everything else above it, I'm giving that all away. Like, how much do you need, John is saying? Like, do you realize the part of following Jesus is generosity? Not living for yourself. He goes on and he applies this to different, kind, different, different uh, uh, jobs. If you are a tax collector, he says, be honest. Just take what you owe. Uh, if you're a soldier... Use, use your job in a way that is respectful of others. Don't require something of somebody. That, listen, what he's saying is, is it, it affects all aspects of your life. If you have a job, show up on time. It's part of being a Christian. If, if you get a key to your workplace, don't steal from them. If, if somebody asks you, did you finish the job and you didn't, don't lie and say you did. Do you see what I'm saying? Uh, following Jesus, coming to Jesus, is a change of who we are. It requires a fundamental shift. Repentance isn't just something that we believe about ourselves and about Jesus, but it's a change of direction. And we no longer are who we once were. Thirdly, we see in this text that we are indispensable. I'm sorry. We are not indispensable. That was a slip of the tongue. 
but that'll preach in some churches. You are indispensable. Walk out of here feeling so good about myself. No, you're not. (laughs) We are like anti-prosperity gospel this morning, aren't we? It's too far. You are not indispensable. Look at, look at the text. In verse 8. He says, some of you say, we have Abraham as our father, but I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Listen, he's speaking to a Jewish context. These are people who have the promise of Abraham. And what, the, what, what, what he's saying is, is don't assume that just because you have the promise of Abraham, just because you're of this ethnicity, just because you're part of Israel as, as a people, as, as an ethnicity, don't just assume that you're good to go. Don't believe that you are just simply through being born qualified for use in God's kingdom. He says, if God wants to, He will raise up a replacement for you out of these stones. Verse 9, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. God can raise up a replacement for us from the stones outside. We are not indispensable. You've done some things for Jesus in your life. You've attended church. You're not indispensable. God can raise up somebody else to do what you could have done. God could raise up a whole nother crop of Christians in Baltimore City to be salt and light. God could shut down the Garden Church and every church that's currently out there and raise up all new churches if He wants to. We are not indispensable. God could raise up somebody else to teach your kids the gospel. God could raise somebody else up to love your neighbor. Like, don't just assume that we are fit and qualified for the service of God because of who we are. You're not indispensable. Point is, God will be glorified with or without you. We want to fake it. We want to play church. We want to play Christian. We want to act like it. But we lack true fruit of repentance. What I believe John is saying is that God will get the glory with or without you. He doesn't need you and He doesn't need me to get the glory, to do His thing. The gospel of Jesus Christ begins with an understanding of the fall. 
meaning if we don't understand sin, we don't understand this first point, we don't understand the fact that we are broken, depraved beings before a holy God. If we don't understand that, we haven't taken one step toward Jesus Christ. In Alcoholics Anonymous, does anybody know what the first step is? Admit that you're powerless. Admit you've got issues. Accept responsibility. AA gets it. You're not going to move toward healing until you accept responsibility for the brokenness in your life. And you're not going to move one step toward Jesus Christ until you realize that you are a viper. Turn to your neighbor. Say, you're a snake. You are a snake. Listen. Repentance means change. Repentance means to recognize who we are before God and to change. The Bible is filled with examples of fruit, of what it looks like to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. For instance, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. Wives respect your husbands. Children obey your parents. It's all through the Scriptures. So we are a people of sinners who gather together to regularly hear from the Word a reminder of who we are. And that is this, we are a snake. We are a viper. We are in and of ourselves poisonous and venomous. But we are a people who don't stop there. We gather as sinners and we come to see Jesus. And so let's see Jesus. Let's move to my second point. First, we see ourselves. Second, we see Jesus. In the year 1700, a man named Count Zinzendorf. Everybody say, Count Zinzendorf. Count Zinzendorf was born. He was a very wealthy man that came from a very wealthy family, ended up being a landowner, and uh, probably had more wealth than all of us combined. Uh, but Count Zinzendorf, kind of like what I was talking about earlier, he used his wealth for the promotion of the gospel. He began with his own pocket a missions work, and really it's turned into a movement. The movement spreading the gospel throughout Germany, it led to the conversion of John Wesley, whose brother's song, by the way, we sang this morning, And Can It Be? Count Zinzendorf, who had a lot of popularity, a lot of fame, a lot of wealth, he said this, I have one passion, and it is he. He only. I think we could apply that to John the Baptist as well. John the Baptist is a man who's coming, and he says, I have one passion, and it is he. He only. Now, people in the story here are confused about John's own identity. In verse 15, they begin to question in their hearts whether or not John might actually be the Messiah. 
Now, remember, John's passion is who? The Lord Jesus Christ. He doesn't want you to get it confused. Don't think, John is saying, that I'm that great. Don't think of me as a preacher uh, to be the one that is, that is glorified, the one that is lifted up, the one that is given uh, the spotlight and the fame and, and, and the power. No, 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 no. Don't get it twisted, John is saying. John wants you to see Jesus, not himself. We could say that about every preacher that's ever here preaching from this pulpit they better want you to see Jesus, not themselves, including myself. John has a passion for Jesus and for Jesus only. And we see three things that John points out about Jesus who hasn't even come yet. First, we see that Jesus is greater in verse 16. He says, the one that's coming... I'm not even worthy to untie his sandal. Well, what does he mean by that? Not willing to untie his shoe? Like, we untie people's shoes just as a joke. What does he mean? I'm not worthy to untie his sandal. Well, the ancient rabbis had a teaching. And the teaching was this. The disciple of any rabbi ought to do for their rabbi every single service that a slave would perform for his master, except one. Here's, here was the one exception. They do not have to untie their sandals. Which meant this was the lowest of all duties that a slave could possibly perform for his master, to untie his sandals and to take his sandals off for him. And what he's saying is, his disciples, serve your masters in every way, but you don't have to do that. That is too low. That's too abased. That's, that's, that, 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 that's too crude for you. Listen, so many of us just assume that by being alive, we are worthy of service in God's kingdom. John is saying, I'm not even worthy to perform the lowest duty in his kingdom. I'm not worthy of anything. Like this man is so far greater. How is he greater? Well, he goes on to show us in verse 16. He says, I'm coming with water, a symbol. But he's coming to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. What he's saying is, is, I don't have any ability in this water to actually produce the kind of repentance that is required. Mine is just a symbol. But he's coming with the Holy Spirit. He's coming with fire. That is not the fire of wrath, but that's the refiner's fire. That's the kind of fire that burns away the sin in your life. It's the kind of fire that burns away the old habits that you've been trying to kick. It burns away the thoughts that you've struggled with. It burns away what we used to be, and we come out the refiner's fire, something different, something changed. What he's saying is, is listen, you need to change. And this one coming, he is so much greater 
because he brings with him the ability to change you. We also see, thirdly, that he's coming to end evil. In verse 17, if you look at the text, it says he's bringing with him a winnowing fork. Now, this doesn't actually mean that when Jesus showed up, he had a fork. He was speaking figuratively. What is a winnowing fork? Well, a winnowing fork is a fork that would be taken and, and, and the wheat would be picked up with it. Uh, the, the fork would throw the wheat up into the air and the grain of wheat is heavier than the chaff. The grain would come back to the ground and the chaff would blow away. Then the farmer would sweep up all of the chaff, put it into a fire, and burn it. What he is saying is, is this one who's coming, he's great, he has the ability to change you, he's coming with the refiner's fire, and he's also coming with the fire of judgment. He's coming to end evil. He's coming to separate the wheat from the chaff. And those who do not belong to him will be burned in a, in, in a fire. Whether as, as it's described here in verse 17, uh, uh, an unquenchable nature to this fire. Now, this is good news. Somebody say, how is any of this good news? Somebody say, how is any of this good news? Come on. Let's wake up. How is this good news? Well, first of all, we're told it's good news in verse 18. It says John goes on preaching good news. Uh, but I'm still wrestling with the text a little bit. How is this good news? Well, he's coming to end evil. Somebody, come on. I need some help here. He's coming to end evil. That deserves an amen. Or a shout or a hallelujah or something. Listen, he's coming to end evil outside of you. The evil in the world. Listen, we, we've got problems. We have addiction. We've got hustle. We've got, we got, listen, by the way, our policy, it's snowing outside, is if the, if the hustlers are out, we're going to be out. All right? So I hit up Eric this morning. I said, hey, you know, he's got a lot of drug trade on his block right now. I said, hey, Eric, are, are the hustlers out? And he said, I just heard uh, 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 Kong in the hole. I said, all right, let's get the gospel in the hole then. <laughs> gospel in the hole. Carday said we're giving out teas, testimonies this morning. <laughs> Listen, you can just look around society and see we, we are broken. We are a broken society. He's coming to end it. He's coming to end the brokenness. He's putting it to death. Not just outside of you, but in you. Remember, he's coming with this refiner's fire. He's ending evil inside of you. Oh, the, the passions 
for the flesh that you have, they're going to be no more. The desire to abuse your body is going to be no more. The desire to uh, uh, take advantage of people and relationships and to live for your selfish pleasures, that is going to be no more. One day we will be freed from even the presence of sin. He's coming to end evil. But how is this good news? How is it possible that you and I could call ourselves wheat when we know we're chaff? How is it possible that you and I could call ourselves saints when we know we are what? Snakes. Well, this is the work he's coming to do. He's taking this judgment of fire that I belong in and he's taking it on himself. He's saying, I am becoming chaff so that chaff might become wheat. I am becoming a snake so that snakes might become saints. Oh, now Jesus knew no sin. When he hung on the cross, he became a sinner in the sense that he took on the penalty for sin. He became the sacrifice for sin. He who knew no sin became sin so that in him we might find the righteousness of God. Oh, the coming of Jesus is good news. To see Jesus for who he is, to know his identity, to taste him is good news. Listen, we don't understand what's good until we understand what's bad. I spent the majority of my sermon talking about what's bad so that we might delight and rejoice in what is good. Uh, you know, Mike Roach, a uh, member of our church, he has cancer. Bad news. Well, he doesn't know that there's even good news, such as chemotherapy, to deal with it unless he first grapples with the reality that he has cancer. You see what I'm saying? Like we, we don't understand that there is good news in the cross of Jesus Christ unless we understand that there is judgment for sin. If we don't understand sin, we won't understand forgiveness. If we don't understand how we are a viper, we won't understand the, the, the beauty of being turned into a saint. If we don't understand Jesus, if we don't understand that we need Him, then we will not rejoice when we find Him. How can any of us be a saint. It's because of Jesus. It's because he's great. I heard a story of a lady who was from a nice neighborhood. She's driving through the city and she sees a young kid standing on the street corner starving. And so she pulls over and he's, he's hungry so she takes him buy some food. The kid tells her that he lives in a car with his mother under the bridge. She gets him some clothes and she takes him back to his mother with plenty of food. He looks at her and he says, lady, are you God? 
because you act a lot like they say God acts. And she says, no, but I am one of his children. He said, I knew you were family. Listen, we are family. We are children of God. Jesus is our brother. When we understand his identity, we begin to understand our identity. And what did I say at the beginning of the sermon? We change. We begin to look like him. By the way, turn to your neighbor. You are a snake, but God is changing you. Tell your neighbor that. You are a snake, but God is changing you. Listen, we come together on Sundays as sinners to see Jesus, to be reminded of who He is, so that we might be reminded of who we actually are in Him, in His identity. Now, I can't end this sermon without looking at verse 20. John the Baptist is consumed with Jesus. He's passionate about Jesus to the point where he continues to preach the truth of the word. And look what happens to him at the end of verse 20. It says, he, speaking of Herod, locked John up in prison. John gave his life for Jesus. Oh, by the way, anti-prosperity gospel message, yet another point. The first preacher of the gospel ended up losing his life because of Jesus. He ended up in jail. He ended up, we're not getting ahead of ourselves, but he ended up beheaded. His head was on a plate, presented to Herod. Are you committed to Jesus? Are you passionate about Jesus? If the world turns against you, are you still committed to Jesus? Are you merely religious or are you a Christian? Are you uh, just simply doing Christian things or have you been converted? Is Jesus real to you or is he a piece of fiction? There was a successful pastor who was having a conversation with a well-known actor. And the pastor said to the actor, explain something to me. We both stand on stages, but night after night, you present fiction and you gather large crowds every night. He said, I present truth and I can't get a crowd. What's wrong? The actor said this to the pastor. He said, the difference between you and I is I present fiction as if it's truth, and you present truth as if it's fiction. Listen, some of us have no impact with our friends and with our family members because we present the Lord Jesus Christ as if he's fiction. We don't live as if he's real. We say he is. Oh, but people can see right through us. Do you know it? Do you know he's real? How do you know? 
Oh, we need to answer these questions. We need to know him. We need to come to him on our knees. We need to say, God, open my eyes to Christ. Make him real to me. So that I know Jesus Christ as my Lord, as my Savior, as my friend. Jesus is a historic figure. The Gospels are written in such a way that we might know that we know him. He is worthy of all of our lives. And he, through his work, has made us worthy to serve him. Have you seen Jesus? Look to him now. Look to Christ. See him on the cross. See him resurrected from the grave, putting death to death in his own death. See him, run to him, cling to him. What a Savior he is. What a man. What a king he is. He's worthy. Amen? He's worthy of all of our power. He's worthy of all of our wealth. He's worthy of all of our wisdom. He's worthy of all of our might. He's worthy of all of our honor. He's worthy of all of our glory. He's worthy of all of our blessing. He's great. As the song says, I searched all over and I couldn't find nobody. I searched high and I searched low and I still couldn't find nobody. Nobody greater. Nobody greater. Nobody greater than Him. I have one passion. And that is Him. And He alone. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank You that Jesus is greater. We thank You that the greatness of the Lord is seen in His redemptive work on the cross for us. We thank You for saving us. For changing us. For bringing that refiner's fire. For giving us the Holy Spirit so that we might know You. So that we might have power to change. God, we thank You for fitting us for Your service. For making us worthy for Your service. And we pray, God, that we as we explore, discover, and delight in the identity of Jesus, that we would change. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.